Amen. And it's because of his faithfulness that we can look forward to a city that is celestial, right? This world is just temporary. It will pass away. And for those of us that know Jesus, we have eternity set before us. Great is his faithfulness. I want to just share an update with you. So many of you have been praying with us, uh, praying for us, and walking with us through this journey of international adoption. And uh, we have uh, many questions every week, and so we thought it's good to give you an update of where things stand with these four little boys in Haiti. Uh, We actually, for the first time, got to see the youngest two brothers' names on paper with our last name. And uh, that's a a big step. Praise the Lord. It's a big step. And we were still uh, praying uh, and waiting to see what the Lord would have for Schneider and Stanley. And this week we were told that their referral is indeed ready. And um, we have a conference call this week with uh, one of the directors for Bethany Global. And the whole goal of the call is to pull together the details of how this is going to happen down the final stretch. uh, And hopefully get a little bit more detail of when these boys are going to come home uh, to be with us. And so please continue to pray. Uh, You have been a part of this journey with us uh, since we came to Calvary Monument And your prayers, your support, your encouragement, your love has been felt. And uh, just so you know, we feel more now than ever that this is imminent, uh, that the time is drawing near, and uh, we are hopeful that that these boys will be home with us soon. So thank you uh, for your prayers. If you have your Bibles, please turn with us. We're going to be in John chapter 9 today. And we've been studying the book of John, we've been studying it in light of the reason it was written, and in light of our new venture in scripture memory, I thought, you know, there's a lot of tools in the Bible to help us know the Bible a little bit better, kind of memory tricks that we can use to remember where things are in the Bible, and something occurred to me this week. I think that we can remember the outline of John chapter 1 through 10 by 10 W words. Ten W words, okay? And we're going to do this chapter by chapter. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. word. John chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine. So we have word, we have wine. John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. So word, wine, world. John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. Good. In John chapter 5, the writer of John is talking about those who are witnesses to Jesus. So in John chapter 5, witnesses. In John chapter 6, Jesus is leading as a greater Moses in a new wilderness. John chapter 6, wilderness, where he feeds the 5,000. John chapter 7, he says, I am the living water, the living water. So we have word wine, world, well, witnesses, wilderness, water. John chapter 8 begins with Jesus. Uh, He's brought this woman who's been caught in adultery. John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 9, he heals the blind man so that he is whole, not H-O-L-E, W-H-O-L-E. And We'll look ahead one chapter, John chapter 12, or John chapter chapter 10, 
We'll be there in a few weeks. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. What W word has to do with sheep? Woo, there we go. John chapter 1 through 10, you can remember it with the W words, all right? Something that the Lord placed on my mind this week, and I thought it would share, I'd share that with you. It kind of helps me remember how the book is laid out, so maybe it'll help you as well as you think about how this book is laid out. <clears throat> well, last week we began John chapter 9, and we saw in the beginning of John chapter 9 that Jesus had healed the man who had been born blind from birth. He was blind from birth. And today, we're going to explore how this miracle of Jesus was received amongst the people. Now, indeed, this was an amazing thing. And this was a miracle unlike anyone had seen in their day, in their time. But what we're going to find is that not everyone responds to the works of Jesus in a favorable or positive way. Not everyone rejoices in Jesus' works. And maybe you've witnessed this in your own life. Maybe Jesus has done something amazing in your life and you've gone and shared it with people only to be met with, oh, well, <clears throat> oh, that was luck. Oh, that was just chance or, you know, ah, it's not that big of a deal. And how do we respond when the works of Jesus in our life are met with disdain, are met with criticism, are sometimes met even with animosity? What is our response in all of this? We're going to be in John chapter 9, looking at verses 13 to 34 today. Before we begin reading, let's pray that God would superintend over our time. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we surround it together as a body of Christ. And we surround it with the anticipation that you are going to work. We know that your word does not return void that you use it to accomplish your purposes. So, Father, we lay into that truth today. We lean into that truth, believing that you will give us exactly what you would have for us to see as we explore this portion of John together today. Father, this morning, some of us may come with somber hearts and minds as we reflect on the tragedy again that happened in our country yesterday. And we don't want to be ignorant, Lord, to the things of this world. That there are many who are living in darkness. And Father, in times like these, we pray for comfort. We pray, Lord, that those who have experienced this unspeakable tragedy in Texas would somehow, Lord, through this, be drawn closer to you, but that you would surround them with love in this season of grief and loss and mourning. Lord, help us make understanding of these things when we cannot understand. Father, I pray you'd guide our time, direct our thoughts today. Might they be honoring to you. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 9, <clears throat> verses 13 to 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I was washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep 
the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. They cast him out. <clears throat> so one observation that you'll make throughout our time together this morning is that both the names of Jesus and the name of this man who was born blind are conspicuously missing from the text. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' name not mentioned once and in the entire chapter, all of John chapter 9, we never come to find the name of this man who was healed, who had been blind from birth. And perhaps this is further pressing into the reality that we looked at last week, that this man could have been any one of us who sit here today enjoying a relationship with the Father. But for Jesus' name to be missing, that's a little different. And just last week, at the beginning of this miraculous account, we found the man quickly willing to identify the name of Jesus in correlation with this miracle. I mean, he quickly gave him credit. And I think what you'll find humorous, I heard some of you even laugh as we got to it in the text this morning, is that everyone in this text seems to know whom everyone else is talking about, but nobody will name the name Jesus. 
And we begin this morning by being reminded that there had been an incredible transformation. Verse 13, the man who had formerly, formerly been blind. And friends, that's, that's the transformation that every one of us who are in Christ has experienced in one way or another. Being brought from spiritual blindness to being able to see out of darkness into light. Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 2. There's a, a picture of this, translate, of this transformation from a spiritual view in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians. Some people say go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Good way to remember that. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 10. Watch this transformation. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind bleak lamentations right that's a bleak picture there watch this in verse four but god here's the transformation being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And did you see that transformation from darkness to light, that spiritual transformation? Physically, this had happened in the life of this man. He was physically blind, but now he was able to see. And as we'll find next week, there's a spiritual transformation taking place in this man's life as well. So what is wrong? What's going on here? Why are people so angered? What, why the hostility? Why is this miracle of Jesus being met with so much disdain and criticism? Well, the answer to that is in verse 14. Little verse there. It was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. Why are the Pharisees so enraged? Why are the religious leaders so upset that this man had been Healed from his blindness because it happened on the Sabbath. And amazingly, we don't find this detail in the first 13 verses. It's curiously left out. But, but could it be that the reason it does not appear in the beginning of this text is that because the writer John wants our complete attention to be on the power of Jesus to completely transform this man? Could that be the reason that it was missing? The distraction of man-made religious codes and systems being broken makes little difference 
in light of a life that's so significantly changed and transformed. What is the meaning of this miracle? How could a man be given power from God to heal another on the Sabbath? This miracle demanded investigation and explanation. And that's what happened. Jesus has violated a popular Sabbath code of conduct. And, and, I, and I don't know about you, but I, I find it very interesting how we know that Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. Yet in the Gospels, it always seems that according to the religious leaders, he's in violation of it. He's the perfect fulfillment of it, yet they're always accusing him of being in violation of or breaking the religious codes that they had come up with. And you notice I say they had come up with. You understand, you're not going to find anywhere in the Old Testament where this violation would fit. This violation uh, falls under the oral tradition of the Jews. It was created years after the Ten Commandments were given. It's in a book that they call the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is, is a compilation of written um, oral tradition. And what it said is it said that the kneading of dough and the making of mud or clay was strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. And it's interesting, the ingredients of saliva and dirt, mixing saliva, spitting down into the ground and mixing it with your finger in the dirt would have been enough to make you guilty of breaking the Sabbath violation. Now I wonder, on any given Sabbath day, how many people may have done that? Now, I don't know. I don't make it a habit of spitting in the dirt and swirling around my finger. But would it have even mattered if a man would not have been healed by that? You know, this is, they're making such a big deal of this. And so the Pharisees, once again, they come to this man and they question him. And they ask a similar question of four different ways here. How did you receive your sight? Do you see that? Over and over and over again in this text. If you, if you like to highlight or you like to underline in your Bible and make notes of, of things that seem to stand out, look at the word how in verses 13 to 34. In just verses 13 to 34, the word how is used five times. How did this happen? 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 Five times. And, and it, it's interesting, the question, the answer to that question, it's very elusive. Because this is a supernatural event. So every time they ask a question of how, the question of how is answered with the answer of what. Right? They don't tell, they can't explain how Jesus did this miracle. There's something more going on here. This is miraculous. It's supernatural. I can tell you what he did. What did Jesus do? Here's what he did. He spit in the mud, or he spit in the dirt. He mixed it up. He put it on my eyes, and I was healed. Now, I, I, I wear contacts. I can't see very well. But I got to be honest with you. Uh, if one of you went outside and spit in the dirt and made some mud and came back in, someone put this on your eyes, and you're going to have 20-20. At first, I don't know if I'd let you do it. But second, I, I don't know if it worked. And if it did work, it wasn't the mud that healed me. And so the how is not answerable. 
And friends, even in our own lives, when Jesus transforms us, when he calls us out of darkness into light, when he saves us, we don't know how he does it. We know what he does. But how does a person raise the dead? We don't know. So the answer to this question of how is elusive. Five different times it's asked because they cannot find the answer to it. He described what Jesus did, but not how. And so what happens is there becomes this division. And there are these two opinions that seem to be formed amongst the religious leaders. And the first opinion is this. Well, this man can't be of God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And the second opinion is, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Maybe he is. Who knows? And really, friends, in many ways, these two opinions are still representative of how we handle the law today. They really are. It's almost an indictment on how we as a church handle God's word and handle the law today. Both opinions, by the way, are misguided here. The first opinion, wildly literalistic, giving more authority to the oral tradition than to grace. So here's the first opinion. Let's, let's put it on premises so we can understand. Premise one, according to our Sabbath law, it's wrong for a person to knead water and dirt to make clay or mud. Okay, that's premise one. Premise two, Jesus needed water and dirt to make clay or mud on the Sabbath. Premise three, those who break the Sabbath commands are not of God. And so what is their conclusion? This man is not of God. Wildly literalistic understanding of oral tradition and the law. Perhaps a modern day rendition of this argument would help. So let's put it in modern day terms. According to popular Christian tradition, it's wrong to listen to any kind of music that isn't expressly labeled as quote-unquote Christian. Lucy went to the Jonas Brothers concert. People who listen to music that's not expressly labeled as Christian are either not of God or confused about his expectations of them. Lucy is either not of God or she's confused about God's expectations for her. Is it really that black and white? Or is this all clear as mud. <laughs> you got that. <laughs> there's, th- there's no thought here given to the motivations and attitudes. There's no thought given to the intentions behind the behavior. It's just a wildly literalistic interpretation of oral law. Seeking to legislate morality by their own created law that says do not handle, do not taste, do not touch and you know church paul warns us against using the law this way he warns the church against using the law this way look at how he warns us this is in colossians chapter 2 if with christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations do not handle do not taste do not touch Referring to all things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value. 
not even little value. When something is of little value, Paul tells us. But here, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Interesting. Friends, we must be careful in how we handle, apply, interpret, carry the word of the Lord. That we're not guilty of the same things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders were guilty of. There's a second opinion here. And though it's also misguided, perhaps it offers a bit more in the way of grace, but no more in the way of answers. Verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And you know, we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament that the signs a person performs is not a good indication of their personal allegiance to God. Think back to the Old Testament. Moses is is coming to Pharaoh and talking about setting the people of Israel free. And he's able to do some miracles. But do you remember early on, so were the magicians. So were the magicians. They were able to mimic some of the signs that Moses did. It's for this very reason that Jesus rebuked a generation that was seeking signs. D.A. Carson says this, quote, Signs are not an infallible guide to spiritual authority. End quote. So there's clear division here. One group saying Jesus is clearly not of God. Another group is saying, well, maybe, but not sure. What if? What if, friends, this man who healed the blind man is not a sinner? What if indeed he is the Messiah, the true Christ, the Son of God? Then shouldn't they have been head over heels excited about standing in his presence? Let's find out more. They go, look at verse 17. They go back to the man. They say to the man in verse 17, what do you say about him? since he opened your eyes. Isn't it interesting? They go back to the source. Whenever there's division, whenever there's confusion, whenever we have different interpretations of things or different understandings of an event, it's always really, really good for us to go back to the source. So that's what they do here. It's a wise decision. What do you say about this man since he opened your eyes? And it's really interesting, his response is the same as the woman at the well. John chapter 4, 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And at the same time, it's different from the man who was healed by the pool of Siloam in chapter 5, who when questioned, he wouldn't, he wouldn't give Jesus credit. This man says he is a prophet. Still unable to rationalize the reality of this healing in their minds. They're now leaning towards the belief that perhaps, perhaps this blind man is lying. Maybe this guy's leading us astray. Maybe this didn't really happen. We have to get to the bottom of this. We have to explore and investigate further. I, I, talked, I was talking to my son this week about this passage. We were sitting at the cafe reading it. And... Uh, I said, I said, Brighton, I said, if you go to school and you were to, to tell the teacher something that they did not believe was true, something outrageous, you know, uh, and, and it sounded like a, a fishtail, you know, I caught that fish, it was this big, all right? I said, 
who would they call? Who would they email? Who would they get in touch with? Guess what he said? You. <laughs> He's right. And so again, as we're tracking through this investigation, it makes sense. Look, this, this can't be the same guy. This probably didn't happen. Let's go find out from his parents. Look at verse 18. Let's start in verse 19. They ask his parents, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then, look at that, there it is, underline it. How then does he now see? And his parents confirmed, look, this is our son. We know. We don't know how he sees now. Perhaps if this is a case of mistaken identity, maybe the neighbors did get it wrong. Maybe this isn't really the man. Let's go talk to his parents. But it's interesting, the confirmation of this miracle only comes after they talk to the parents, where they truly believe that this must be the guy, right? Because it says right in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and received sight, and then what do you see? What's the next word? Until. Until. They didn't believe it. Can't be the same guy. And they go to the parents, and the parents confirm it, And they make two affirmations. First, they claim that this is indeed their son. We know that this is our son. And second, they affirm the reality that their son had been born blind. Yes, this is our son. And yes, indeed, he was born blind. But just as they affirm two realities, they also object to knowing two realities, don't they? They object to knowing, first, how he received his sight. How he received his sight? We don't know. That's an honest answer. I don't know. And we know what Jesus did, but how he did it, we don't know. The second, they object to knowing the identity of the one who healed him. Now, I found that very interesting. And I wonder how honest his parents are being here, don't you? Because isn't it interesting that earlier in the chapter, when Jesus performed this miracle, the neighbors, remember the neighbors came to him And they said, who did this? Who gave you your sight? And how did he respond? This man called Jesus. Now the neighbors would know, but the parents wouldn't. I mean, maybe, that that probably does happen. Sometimes our parents probably find things out from our neighbors we wish they wouldn't have found out. Perhaps perhaps that's what's going on here. I don't know. But you know there's a hint to what's motivating his parents here, isn't there? Isn't there a hint in the text right here to what's motivating their parents? Look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And we've said this before, friends. We've agreed that fear is a terribly good, bad motivator. Fear is a terribly good, bad motivator. The blind man's parents fear losing their place in community. They fear being put out of the synagogue, being ostracized by their friends, maybe even their family. And friends, their fear is meant to be a lesson to us, to not be guided by the same motivation. It's the fear of being shunned, being disassociated from the community, being considered a heretic or an outcast because of a particular belief or allegiance. Sometimes this is the very fear that keeps us from standing for Christ. I'll be honest with you, I had friends who went through a trial 
a few years ago. It was a very difficult season of life for them. They're older, and they had a very difficult thing happen in their family. And they took a stand for the Lord in this situation. And they did some things that the unbelieving world thought were very, very extreme. And in fact, people even created Facebook posts and pages against the decision that they had made. And, and they faced a lot of criticism. I think the mailbox was smashed four or five times on their road because of the stand that they took. But they would tell you now, looking back, because of the great victory that they saw the Lord accomplish through it, that they would not have done it any other way. That season comes and goes. It's a difficult season. We face criticism. We face penalties. We face the community even coming out against us in certain ways. But looking back, seeing how their family remained intact and how their family was healed through it and through the decisions that they made, they would tell you that they would not have done it any other way. And the parents in this case, they would rather not get involved. They're trying to save their reputation. Look, what do they say? They just, hey, look, he's of age. Ask him. Oh, we don't want to get involved in this. With the interpretation and the meaning of this miracle still unresolved in their mind. It's almost like you're watching a ping pong ball here, isn't it? These religious leaders, go to the blind man, go to the parents, go back to the blind man. Let's figure this thing out, right? They're continuing to investigate. Verses 24 to 29, look down at verse 24. For a second time, second time, this is the third time he's been questioned, but the second by the religious leaders. For a second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How? How did he open your eyes? And it's obvious here, friends, that John intends for us to clearly see how desperately confused these leaders were. And, and you know, it's, it's really interesting. You can find in the book of John, I don't know if John liked the religious leaders too much when you read his gospel. In his book, whenever they're confused, boy, they, they, they really get painted in a bad picture. You can flip back to John chapter 1 and you can see this clearly. Remember when they were trying to figure out who John the Baptist was? All of a sudden, here's this guy, John the Baptist, on the scene. And all the religious leaders are like, we've got to figure out who this guy is. He's baptizing people. What's he doing? We better figure it out. So uh, 19 to 25, six verses. In six verses, seven questions. Listen, this is the testimony of John, starting in verse 19 of chapter 1. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Who are you? They asked the same question of Jesus, right? Over and over and over again in this question. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Seven questions, six verses. 
the more desperate they were to understand, the, greatest number, the greater number of questions that they had. And we see that pattern in the book of John. And their approach this time around is very interesting. They begin with a statement back in John 9. Their minds are already made up. They know now, okay, this was the man who had been born blind. Okay, he's been healed. They come back, all right, give glory to God. We know this guy's a sinner. Give God the credit. Let's not talk about this guy. Again, the name of Jesus absent from this miracle. We believe you've been healed. Just confess that this man who heals you is a sinner. Give glory to God. And the man's mind is not settled yet. In a very matter-of-fact way, he retorts, actually, in verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, what does he say? I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they ask him again to describe the miracle, and, and he becomes indignant. And almost sounding much like Jesus in his interactions with the religious leaders, he throws it right back on them. Look, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear him again? Now the next thing he says is going to just, this is, he's going to really get them angry here. Right? Because everybody knows we're talking about Jesus here, but no one's saying his name. Do you also want to become his disciples? Right? Now, now, this is a read-between-the-line type of question. And it infers a few different realities. It gives us another clue that everyone knew who was involved in this miracle, but no one wanted to say his name or admit who it was. Notice that the man born blind told his friend so quickly in verse 11, this man called Jesus. But when he says here, do you also want to become his disciples, he's implying that the man who healed him already had disciples. And he's also implying in some ways that perhaps the popularity of this man among the people was growing. Do you also? All these other people, do you also want to be his disciples? The popularity of Jesus and his miracles and what he was doing amongst the people was growing. And apparently here we're privy to be... uh, We're privy to be in one of these discussions where everybody knows who everybody else is talking about, but nobody's saying the person's name. And their anger is kindled against him, is it not? Verse 28, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Remember in John chapter 8, who did they celebrate? Father Abraham, right? Abraham's our father, woo, woo. Hey, we're disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Look at that line again. We do not know where he comes from. That was true, wasn't it? Didn't Jesus even say that in John chapter 8? Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from, or where I am going. Jesus had already said it. They were just affirming that it was true. Everything Jesus has said about the religious leaders all the way up through these first nine chapters of John is absolutely true. And they confirm it with their own words. You don't know. Yeah, they're telling him, we, we don't know. 
We don't know. And by this man's understanding of miracles and healings, there's only one possible place that this man could have come from. And he's rather appalled that the Pharisees do not recognize it. And now he's going to take the opportunity to give them clear instructions. I love how he responds. Look at verse 30. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. And, and, I, and I can't help but think that in this moment, I mean, this is surely a young man who had been raised in the synagogue. Otherwise, there would not be fear that he would be cast out of it. Many years had been invested in the synagogue, and I can't help but believe that as he was growing up in the synagogue, his very next statement is what he was taught by these same religious leaders. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. I mean, can you see him in his class as a young boy being taught this verse 31? We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. How do you not know where this man comes from? You see, he knew that the Jews always attributed a miracle to the answer of the miracle worker's prayers. If there was a miracle that happened amongst the Jews, then the attribution of that miracle didn't go back to the miracle worker. It went back to the prayers of the miracle worker. Whether he be a rabbi or a prophet or someone else, if there was a miracle, it was always a result of the prayer of the miracle worker. God did the work, in other words. This has never been done in the history of the world. And if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And again, Jesus affirmed this. John chapter 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And last week we looked at that beautiful picture of connection all the way back in the book of Genesis where God breathed life into man and we connected how Jesus was doing the same thing that he saw his Father doing in the garden at the beginning of time because he was with God in the beginning. If this man, now think about this, if this man were not of God, then by what power? Was he healed? Were the religious leaders willing to go that far? To say that he was healed by the power of some other being? Perhaps even Satan? A demon? At this point, friends, they're just completely off their rockers. They're, they're enraged. And as often the case when these Pharisees are interrogated and they get upset, um, we see their true personality, the, the true character of who they are, come to light. And there's further evidence here that this was a corrupt and immoral system of self-kingdom building in Jesus' day. In their fit of rage, they themselves were clearly blinded to the evidences that they should have known from the Old Testament, which they would have prided themselves in having memorized. Christ was in their very midst. Isaiah chapter 29. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. 
Isaiah chapter 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And all they can muster here at the end of this interrogation is another attack on the personal character of this man who had been healed. Isn't it interesting that the way they respond here reveals the true conditions of their own heart? You were born in utter sin, and you're going to teach us? I guess they weren't born in utter sin. And isn't it interesting? Last week we said one of the predominant views in that day was that if a person was born blind or had some kind of physical deformity or physical information from birth, that it was because of their sin or the sins of their parents. Aren't they just exposing that that's the reality of what they believe here in this statement? It all comes to bear in this one statement. An attack on the character of the man who had been healed. One that ends up with him ultimately being expelled from the synagogue. The very reality that motivated his parents' fear of the Jews became that reality in the life of their son. Get out! Don't come back. You're not a true Jew. We're separating, from, we're separating from you and we're separating you from our fellowship. You're to be despised, to be hated, to be avoided by all true worshiping Jews. Anyone who is a true Jew will no longer have any fellowship with you. We cast you out. And then there's this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, the difference, friends. Oh, the difference between judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous, self-pious religious leaders and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And as we conclude John chapter 9 next week, we will find once again that Jesus is indeed faithful to keep this word. He will not cast this man out. Though the religious leaders do, Jesus will not. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? And friends, we need to be ready for the responses that we will get at the work of Jesus in our lives. Not everyone is going to be excited about the work that God is doing, about the work that Jesus is doing in our life. And in fact, some people will be downright indignant about it. They'll doubt it. They'll question us. They'll say, oh, it's just, you're just on the mountaintop. Wait till you come down. Oh, did that really happen that way? Are you sure? Lots of questions. Jesus didn't need this man to defend him. Friends, Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. Isn't it amazing? This man simply needed to model what's encouraged in 1 Peter. This is a challenge for us, church. But in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. 
Why do we have great hope in us? Because of Jesus. The testimony of this man in verse 11, when his neighbors come to him and ask him how he had been transformed, his testimony began with Jesus. This man called Jesus. Friends, for our testimonies, for those of us who sit here and enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ, we've been called to have fellowship with God through Jesus. Our testimonies of being brought from darkness to light begin with Jesus. Jesus changed my life. I can't tell you how. I just know that I see things differently now than I did before. I was once blind, but now I see We give glory to God. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice that we have that opportunity. And that's what we will remember today as we prepare for communion. Our elders will be thankful. We're thankful that your son Jesus took on flesh and came to this earth and showed us his miraculous healing power. That he was able to give sight to a blind man. To completely transform his life. To go from not seeing to seeing in an instant. And Lord, it's that same power that's transformed us. That's brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Father, we celebrate now the thankfulness of the work of your son Jesus. The blood that he shed on our behalf on the cross, and His body, which was given as a sacrifice. Lord, as we prepare for that today, we pray that You would be honored and we would be thankful in remembering the work of Your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.